Well, good morning, Crossroads family. How are we this morning? We're going to try and make this work with a wireless mic. We'll see how that goes. The guys in the back are doing their best. They're pretty good at keeping everything on track. Does, do I sound weird or do I sound okay? Sound okay? All right, good. I'm not weird. That's good. Hey, how many have ever tried to grow something? Anybody ever tried to grow anything? Yeah, anybody been frustrated trying to grow something? I remember when I was a little kid and I got one of those like little cups. You got to plant a little seed in there and supposedly like the seed would germinate and come up and I'd be all excited about the, the fruit that would come out of this little plant. And I remember sitting it on my shelf in my house and Greg's coming up to do something. <laughs> Greg's trying to help me get this taller. Right. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Everybody give him a round of applause. He's a good helper. And I remember just uh, wondering when that seed would finally come up through and burst through the soil, and unfortunately, it never happened. And I was very disappointed as a child because I realized that there were some things lacking for it to produce the fruit that it needed. And uh, one of the things that, you, that produces a good garden is a good gardener. How many agree with that statement? Yeah? How many know a good gardener? I do. It's my wife. She's growing stuff in the backyard all the time. And a good gardener prepares the soil, plants the seed, waters the seed, weeds the garden, cultivates, making sure that there's enough fertilizer and nutrients in the soil to generate a good harvest, keeping the pests at bay, the dog from digging up all the plants, right? How many have had that dog issue? Yeah, dog. And ultimately, they, they, they're able to bear a great harvest. This year, my, my wife grew pumpkins for the first time. And we have these beautiful pumpkins now sitting on our front porch for this season of October, all because of my wife's labors as the gardener. Well, today we're starting a new series and we're entitling it Grow Time. It's time to grow, both as his church and as individuals within the church who believes that we need growth in our lives. Yeah? Well, if, if you believe that, if you know that that's needed in your own life like it is in mine, then you've come to the right place this morning because we're going to look into God's Word and we're going to see His recipe for growth. His recipe for growth. Now, in the Bible, in John chapter 15, Jesus was in the upper room with His disciples on the final night that He was going to spend on earth before He went to the cross. And He said these words. He said, I am the vine... And my father is the gardener. John 15, 1. I am the vine, and my father is the gardener. That means that he is the one that we need to be connected to for growth. And the father in heaven is the one who makes sure that that growth is going to take place in our lives. Is that reassuring? Yes. Is your growth dependent on you, or is it dependent on God? The harvest belongs to the Lord. Amen? The growth is dependent on God, but we have to be connected to him in order to see the fruit in our lives, in order to see our lives transformed the way that he would have them transformed. And so in the book of John, it talks about who 
Jesus is in relation to the Father. I want to read one passage for you. It's John chapter 14, verse 7. If you knew me, you would also know my Father. This is Jesus speaking. From now on you do know him, and you have seen him. Lord, said Philip, one of his disciples, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time without your knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has already seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In another passage, Jesus declares that the Father and I are one. Speaking of himself, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. So the gardener, although it says that the gardener is God, the gardener is also Jesus because Jesus and the Father are one. They're one and the same. And we need to depend on the gardener in order to see fruit and growth in our lives. We're going to be uh, diving into a book called Second Peter. It's in your Bible. It's near the end of the New Testament, the end of the Bible. So if you have one, you want to start opening up to Second Peter. If you don't have one, you'll be able to see it on the screen behind you. All right, I got okay. And the authorial intent. What does that mean? That just means what was on the author's heart and mind when he penned the words. Through a little hermeneutic session this morning, because that's really what we're going to look at. This he had met the Father, God, through Jesus. We need to take a look at a few episodes from from the author's life. Thankfully, we have those in the Word of God. They're recorded for us in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. Uh, hey, can we use your boat? I need to get out of here. Okay. Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Jesus is probably like, man, you just saw me do a miracle. I turned five loaves and two fishes into enough to feed a mass of, of a huge stadium of people. And we had more than what we started left over. That's amazing. You just witness me being the God of abundance, the God who can do anything, and now you're freaking out because of a little storm. He got up, verse 39, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, silence, be still. Anybody ever tried that in the middle of a storm? How's that work for you? Yeah, it doesn't, the storm doesn't listen to me, but the storm listens to Jesus. The wind ceased, and there was great calm. And then he said to them, Why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, Who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? When you meet the gardener, fear is replaced with peace. When you meet the gardener, fear is replaced with peace. His presence brings calm the storms in your life. You know, the sea is, a, is an illustration of living in, in this world. All kinds of things can happen when we're on the sea. And yet if Jesus, if the gardener is with us, we can experience peace. Even in the midst of storms that happen in life. Peter had experienced this. Peter was in that boat. He had witnessed this and many other things. He understood who Jesus was. And he was the gardener. And he was 
he had met him, he was connected to him. Matthew chapter 14. Another time that the, the disciples happened to be on a boat, it says immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. This is another moment of ministry. Jesus is like, this time I'm going to stay back. I'm going to minister to these people. You guys go on ahead of me. I'll catch up. So they get in the boat. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land. And it was buffeted by the waves because of the wind that was against it. And shortly before dawn, shortly before the sun rose, it's dark out on that lake. And the disciples are struggling in the midst of this wind and waves. Jesus went to them, walking out on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's really you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you and walk out on the water. Jesus said, come. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind and he was afraid, he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they climbed back into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipping him, or worshipped him, and said, truly you are the Son of God. Can you imagine some of these moments? Yeah, we read them and we know them from our, maybe if we were in Sunday school and we've heard some of these stories. But imagine being there. Being there with the one who all creation was made through him and for him. He was there at the beginning and all the world was formed. The universe came about through Jesus, as he and the Father, as one, worked to establish this plan that we are living out, the plan of humanity, the plan of every single life that would be born on this earth. And Jesus, the creator of the earth, was with them in this moment. Doubt, not only is fear replaced with peace when you meet the gardener, but doubt is removed in power. Do you see the power that they experience, the power of God? Can you walk on water? No, you can't, can you? But Jesus, no problem for him. And in faith and in power, Peter got out of that boat and he walked on the water. You know, we, we experience a lot of things in our lives and we, we sometimes we lack the faith and we, we don't tap into the power of God through those circumstances, and we try and do things on our own. And when we try and do things on our own, we start looking at our surroundings and we get either discouraged or we lack faith to continue. And we start to drown, we start to sink in our own mess or in the mess in which we live in. But not Peter. Peter was able to walk on, on water because he was living by faith in that moment, he was experiencing the power of God. When you walk in faith, you move in supernatural power. The final little episode before we dive into 2 Peter that I want you guys to recount from Peter's life is in John chapter 14. He was in the upper room with Jesus on the night that he would be betrayed by one of his own. And taken and led away and, and have a mock trial where they convicted him of, of a crime that deserved death even though he was innocent. And he would shed his life 
on a cross that next day. He was in the upper room with his disciples, and he wanted to, he knew all that was about to occur. And he wanted to remind his disciples of something, and this is what he says, John chapter 14. Jesus says, your heart must not be troubled. And they were, they were troubled because they were in Jerusalem at this moment. And the last time they were there, Jesus was being attempted to be arrested. And the disciples didn't know what to do. And they were freaked out because their master was being a wanted man. Now they're back in Jerusalem again. And sure enough, Jesus was going to be arrested that night. Jesus, knowing this, is speaking into his disciples' lives, including especially for Peter, your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I'd be honest with you. There's no future for you guys. That's not what Jesus says, is it? If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back, and I will receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responds, Oh, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father except through me. Jesus assures them of this promise that there is a hope. There is a future beyond this struggle and this pain. Many of you I know, I, I get the prayer requests each week. Jan, who prayed up here this morning, she kind of handles our prayer requests as a church, and she sends them out to those of us on the leadership team, the pastors, the elders, others, the prayer warriors of this church. And I have to be honest with you, sometimes I read through them and I get very discouraged about all the struggle and the pain and the difficulty that life throws at all of us. But our God gives us hope beyond the grave, beyond the struggle, beyond the circumstance. And here he is reminding his disciples, including Peter, the author of 2 Peter, that there is a future and a hope. Fear is replaced with peace when you meet the gardener. Doubt is removed in power. And hope is restored through promise. Hope is restored through promise. His precious promises become an anchor for our hope. Open, open up uh, with me to 2 Peter, if you have that. We're going to dive in this morning as we look at this. 2 Peter chapter 1. It says this, Simeon, Peter, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know, this opens like every other normal Greco-Roman letter of that era. In today's modern era, how do you sign your letters? Where do you put your name? Usually at the bottom, right? Well, in the world of that day, they would sign it at the top. They would introduce themselves as the author, and that's kind of convenient, right? How many have ever scanned down, you ever receive something, and you're not sure who it's from, and you scan to the bottom first before you read it to see who it's from? And that shapes how you're going to receive the letter, how you're going to receive the information that's written and, and contained within well, in that day, you didn't have to scan down. You just saw it right at the top. So Simeon Peter, what is that? Who is that? Well, Simeon is the Hebrew name for Simon. Simon is the Greek. But in this situation, in this particular instance, it's only twice in the Bible that he's introduced to Simeon. But that was likely his real name. He was a Jew. He was a Hebrew. 
And his name was Simeon. And he uses that title specifically as he introduces this letter. And then he uses his Greek name, Peter. Why does he do that? Likely it's because of the mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles that were in the church by this time. This letter is written at the end of Peter's life. Peter is likely in Rome in prison. He's about to face execution. And he wants to encourage the church. There are some things that he wants to write to those of us in the church that we need to hold on to, that we need to know, that we need to be convinced of if we're going to grow, if we're going to continue to thrive as God's people. A slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Slave. Why does he use this term? Because Peter understands who he is. You know, he was a slave to sin. He was a rambunctious fisherman. Probably cussing, swearing, and fighting everything else fishermen did in that day. And when he met the gardener, when he met Jesus, everything changed. And he went from that to a man that was going to lay down his life for his Savior. He was on the cusp of being crucified, and he he was not willing to be crucified like his Savior because he was not worthy of the same death. And so he asked the Roman soldiers to turn him upside down. And he died on a cross upside down, tradition holds. This is a man who was facing death. He was a slave because he was owned. He was owned by Jesus. He was bought at a high price. He had witnessed the cross of Christ. He was convinced that his life no longer belonged to himself, but belonged to the one who had bought him. He first calls himself a slave, and then he calls himself an apostle. He had that in the right order. You have to be purchased by his blood before you can be used by God. And the apostle simply means set one. It's one who has been given a mission. And that's what he meant by apostle. He was sent by God on a mission. Then he goes on to say this, To those who have obtained a faith of equal privilege with ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This last part of verse 1, it introduces the audience. Who did Peter intend this letter to be written to? Well, it's right here. To those who have obtained a faith of equal privilege with ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Obtained. What does that word mean? In the Greek, it literally means to be to receive by lot. To obtain is not to get something by some sort of earning it, by some sort of like work that you've done. No, it's simply by lot. Casting of lot. What does that look like? That means that it's God's sovereign choice. Literally, it's his choice to reveal himself to each one of us. You realize that? But God is a good God because he continues to reveal himself to our whole world. But we, we can literally think of ourselves in the church as chosen. You know, in the book of Ephesians, it talks about that, that we were chosen in him before the foundations of the world. Wow, what an amazing privilege in which we stand. And Peter understood this. He said, you have obtained a faith of equal privilege with ours. What does that term, faith of equal privilege, mean? It means that it's a gift. It's a gift of grace from God. And it entitles you to enjoy a special privilege or standing with God. 
that not everybody has. Not everybody has a right standing with God. Do you realize that? As a matter of fact, the Bible says that all of us are born as sinners. And we're in a bad standing with the Father from birth. But God in his mercy, God in his grace reaches out and reveals himself to those of us who have a heart that's willing to receive it. And he changes our heart and he draws us and he chooses us to reveal himself to us. This term um, was used of foreigners in that day who had been granted the privileges of citizenship, which were equal to those of the native born. Now we understand that, right? If you're born in the USA, what does that make you? A citizen with all the rights and privileges that come with that. But this term defines giving that privilege and that honor and that status to someone who did not deserve it. Someone who did not naturally have that right. That's what's being defined here. Those who have received or obtained a faith of equal privilege. How do we receive it? Well, the end of the verse tells us how we receive it. Through the righteousness of God, of, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This term righteousness, it's an interesting word. It's a theological word. It, it's the word justification. How many have ever heard of that term, justification? It's a legal term. And what it means is that when you showed up to court, you owed a great debt. You were guilty of something that led to the fact that you owed a great debt that you couldn't even repay. You had the, you didn't have the capacity to repay the debt that was on your account. And so in that day, the judge would usually issue a sentence, since you can't pay it, you're gonna be in prison and you're gonna work it off and you're gonna work it off forever because you're never gonna be able to repay this great debt. You're gonna be a prisoner for life. But this word righteousness or justification is the act of the judge. Instead of giving you the sentence that you rightfully deserve, he said this instead, he said, guess what? Your debt has been completely paid. Your debt has been completely wiped out. What? Yeah, there's, there's a just and a fair and a righteous king who came along and, and decided to pay for your account. So you are now free to go. You are free to enjoy life. You get to go debt free because of someone else's love, because of someone else's generosity, because of someone else's grace in your life. That's what this term means. Does that mean that we somehow earn it? Does that mean that we somehow deserve it? No, you showed up to court and you were a guilty man. You showed up to court and you did not have the capacity to pay your debt. Someone did. Someone reached out and was willing to pay your debt for you. It's a legal term that declares that your debt has been paid and you no longer have any kind of guilt or shame. I love the term God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not God or Savior, is it? No, it's God and Savior, two roles, and who's the one man that fulfills both those roles? This is one of the most powerful texts in the Bible that declares that Jesus is God. That Jesus is not just Savior, he's not just the Son of God, but he is equal, co-equal with the Father. He is God. Peter declares that. Why? Because Peter had seen it. You remember when he was on the mountain? He was with just two other guys. 
James and John, and there was Peter. And suddenly Jesus pulled back the flesh. And underneath that was glory so bright that you couldn't even look upon. He transfigured himself before them. In other words, he showed them his glory. He showed them who he truly was, that he was God in the flesh. And that moment rocked Peter's world. It was a moment that will be repeated and will be testified about in this letter that we are beginning together in the coming weeks. The Savior was someone who delivered you from trouble or an enemy. And they brought you from a place of, of destruction to a place of health and safety. So it's like you're a hero. If you're ever on a ship and you're going down and somebody throws you a lifeline, that's your hero. That's your savior. But if you're ever in a military situation and you're overwhelmed by the enemy and suddenly somebody shows up with great forces to repel that enemy and rescue you from great harm, that's also your savior. So this term was used as both in regular life and in military times as a savior who brought you to health and safety. So it, it carried a connotation of what doctors do. They take great you know, things that are wrong with you and they give you some sort of uh, prescription or some sort of like uh, remedy that brings about, again, new health and safety. That's what Jesus has done for us. He saved us from our own trouble. He saved us from a great enemy that wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And he wants to bring us into a life of health, freedom, and safety. Amen? Amen. Second Peter, Jesus is called Savior five times. Peter knew who Jesus was. Peter knew who Jesus was. Five times in the book of Second Peter alone, and it's only used 16 times in the whole New Testament. Peter uses it almost one-third of the times that it's revealed. More often than anywhere else. Jesus is God incarnate, and Jesus is our Savior. My question to you is this. Have you met the gardener? Have you met the gardener? Have you understood who Jesus is in your life? Have you embraced him as your God and your seed? Because you can't grow. You can't, you can't be transformed. You can't move forward in life without him being at the center. Being in the rightful place in your heart and life. Oh, I plead with you this morning. If you don't know him as Savior, today can be the day. Today can be the day that you open up your heart and say, Jesus, I know I'm a mess. Jesus, I know I've sinned. I've broken your holy law in more ways than one. And I deserve everything that's coming at judgment day. But wow, you paid my debt? On that cross, you set me free? Your life became a sacrifice for my sin? You love me that much? I receive you as my Savior. Come into my heart. Be my Lord. Walk, walk in front of me. Help me submit my and bow my knee to every will and decision of yours as I walk this life on earth. That's what God wants. That's what God has prepared in his son. It's not just supposed to be something we celebrate on a couple holidays for the year. No, we're supposed to celebrate it every day. We're supposed to be excited about who Jesus is in our life every moment of every day. That's what he wants. Verse 3. Verse 3. Normally, it was normal in that day that once you introduced a letter, you introduced who was writing it, and you introduced 
the audience of who is receiving it. You would normally do some sort of like benediction of prayer, or you would do some sort of blessing for your audience, unless there was such a distressing situation that you decided, I'm going to skip all that, because it's time to get right to the point. Well, 2 Peter is one of those letters, one of those rare and few letters in the New Testament that does not include the traditional blessing. It does not include the traditional prayer from the writer for his audience. Because Peter understands that i got to get right to the point. There's dire situations that have arisen in the church. One of those things was he recognized that the church was starting to give in to the world. The church was starting to become more and more like what they were supposed to be, a light to reach. There were false teachers that were creeping up. There were false teachers who were saying, hey, follow my example. This is how we should live. God gave us freedom so we can do whatever we want. And Peter said that is the wrong message. That is the wrong thing for the church to embrace. And he says it's so dire and urgent, and I don't know how much longer I got on this earth, so I need to get right to the point. And so he dives in and he says these words in verse 3. His divine power. Whose divine power? God in Christ. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. If you listen to that, I'm going to read it one more time. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. You know, he talked about earlier that we get peace when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But we don't just get peace, we get power. The gardener not only provides peace, he provides power in our lives. And his divine power provides us everything we need to walk out a life, a godly life. Literally, that, that word is not necessarily two different ideas. It's not like he gave us everything we need for life and for godliness. No, it's everything we need for a godly life. To live the life that God wants us to live on this earth. Every moment, every decision, every relationship can be godly. Can be what God wants it to be. Why? Because of his divine power. How do we tap into that power? How in the world can I experience the power of God? Well, we need to ask Peter because he experienced it. You remember when he walked on water? What kind of faith was that to walk on water? What kind of power was he living out in that moment to be able to walk on water? This man knew what it meant to tap into the power of God. And throughout the rest of his letter, he's going to instruct us on what it looks like to tap into that power. So there's my little advertisement to come back, to stay tuned, because we're going to see that through the coming weeks. Fear is replaced with peace. Doubt is removed in power. And finally... Hope is restored through promise. You remember in the upper room, Jesus gave this promise that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come again. Amen. Maranatha, we're looking forward to that day. We're closer to that day than ever before. Do you realize that? And when you wake up tomorrow, if we wake up, and we're not in the presence of God yet, we're even closer to that day. Amen. And that day is real, and that day is coming. And we as the church should be looking forward to that day with great anticipation. But in the meantime, what kind of lives are we living? Are we living in power? Are we living in faith? Are we living for ourselves? Are we living in this world for all of its temporary glory? 
verse 4, by these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. Do you hear that? He has given us very great and precious promises. I love Peter. He uses the word precious many times. My precious. No, he, he wasn't a Tolkien fan. He wasn't a Tolkien fan. But Lord of the Rings, if you guys didn't get that. But he, he certainly loved the word precious. Listen to all the things that he described with precious. Um, he talks about the precious faith. Here he talks about the precious promises. He talks about the precious blood of Jesus. He talks about the precious stone that we are anchored in. He talks about a precious Savior. He certainly loved the word precious. And, and why not? Because Peter had experienced how precious it was to have Jesus be his Savior. And he wants others to know that they also can experience the preciousness of God. Why did God give us his precious promises. Did you see it right there at the end of our section this morning? Why did he give it to us? So that we could live for ourselves? So that we could do whatever we want? No. It says very clearly so that we, so that through embracing those promises, we can share in the divine nature. What does that mean? We become gods? I'm here to declare that we're all Mormons this morning. We're all going to be our own gods and run planets. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that we can become more and more. We can take part in the divine nature. What does that mean? To become more Christ-like. Is that not the goal of the church? Ephesians chapter 4 says, Until we all grow up into him who is the head, even Christ. That's the goal. We shouldn't be becoming less like Christ as we journey through this life. Once he becomes our savior. Once we give him our heart and life. We should be looking more and more like who? like our Savior. In what? In our speech. Think about your speech. Think about what you just said in the last few days to your spouse or to your co-workers. Is your speech becoming more and more like Jesus? Or has your growth been stymied? In your life, in the way you live your life, in every decision you make, are you humble? Jesus was humble. Though he was God, he humbled himself and became like a servant. This morning it was encouraging to see so many humble people willing to adapt and set up these chairs and all the tent coverings so you guys could have some. Except for Malou, he loves the sunshine. Yes, amen? I know where you're at. You're in the sun. You don't want to move to the shade? God wants us to understand something. He wants us to understand that our speech and our life and our faith and our love and our purity needs to look more like Jesus as we journey with him. Peter wrote these words so that we could share in the divine nature. We have access to the power of God to shape us into the image of Christ. You're like, yeah, I know, one day when I die, I'm going to look like Jesus. Yeah, you're right. But you should be journeying all through this life to become more and more like, like who he is. Reflecting him to a lost world. You know, it's been said that sometimes the only... The only Jesus people will ever see is you and me. Are we reflecting him well? And we can escape the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. This, this word corruption is interesting. It's a word that's used to define what happens when metals start to break down. 
takes a long time, right? But for things to corrode and rust, but eventually they're worthless. How many of you have ever seen American Pickers? That show American Pickers, they go around to like farmland where like old cars have been buried in the dirt for like 50 years and they offer them $10,000 for this old rust bucket, right? And I'm sitting there going, they're nuts. And the person who owns the rust bucket is like, I'm not selling. I'm like, you're nuts. <laughs> Because eventually that stuff becomes worthless, right? It just rots in the ground. That's what happens to our lives as we're in this world and we're not allowing God to shape our hearts. We become corrupt and defiled and, and ultimately become worthless for his purpose. Fear is replaced with peace as we meet the gardener. Not just meet him, but get to know him. Did you see it says through the knowledge of him? What does that mean? Knowledge is not just head knowledge, it's experiential knowledge. Do you know Jesus? Have you experienced his love and grace in your life? Fear is replaced with peace. Doubt is removed in power. And hope is restored through promise. I love, I had no clock this morning. It was, a, it was really reassuring. I have no idea. Is it like 2.30? <laughs> I was over there laughing. Would you join me in prayer? And then I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to finish out our service this morning. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for who you are. Thank you for your servant, Peter, for his life, for these words that we get to read and meditate on, God. You, you have them recorded for our benefit and for a grand reason. Because you know that even in 2022, we'd be struggling with these same things as your people, as your church. God, I pray that as we journey through this, this letter, as we journey through this this man's heart that was being inspired by your Holy Spirit as he wrote these words and he's pouring out his heart for the church, that we might be impacted by them, that we might be transformed by the reality and by the truth that they convey. God, thank you for this letter, Second Peter. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you so much that you sent him to justify us, to be our righteousness, to satisfy the debt that was owed through our sin. He substituted his righteousness into our account as we placed our faith and trust in him. God, thank you for the cross. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.